last two to five years. Part of financial services is known to be very tough. And traders trading all sorts of things. Volatility in the foreign exchange market. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome to Thursday's Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. Chinese growth slows to its lowest pace since the financial crisis. Standard & Poor's cuts Greece's credit rating further into junk territory and the EU files antitrust charges against Google, accusing it of search abuse. This is the second largest economy in the world. It consumes half of all new cement, steel, uh, coal... It puts up half of all new buildings on Earth, and it's been a huge success, as people know. But it's, the $10 trillion economy needs a new model, a new economic model. It's running out of steam. Yeah, that's uh, former U.S. Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson and friend of Chinese President uh, Xi Jinping talking about China. So... Is the world's second largest economy running out of steam? We'll ask our two guests this morning, Graham Maxton of the Club of Rome and then also Professor Giles Chance of the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth, Dartmouth College in the U.S. Both of them are specialists on the Chinese economy. And of course, uh, we have with us our regular Thursday guest host, Peter Lewis. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Renita. So, Peter, another China-focused day. Uh, no shocks with the GDP numbers, eh? Shouldn't be any surprise there. There's been a lot of anecdotes total evidence that the economy is slowing, things like electricity usage, bank loans, um, rail rates, they're they're all showing that GDP is slowing. The real question is, uh, what is the real rate? And I suspect it's closer to 5% than uh, 7%. We've had a range of experts on this show go anywhere from 4% to, you know, the 7% figure that China is officially releasing. And I don't think the Chinese government is making up the number. But the thing is, it's a very large economy, 1.2 billion people. It is very, very hard to measure the GDP of a country that size. And yet they get the GDP number out quicker than the US does and never does any revisions. So there must be some question marks about the accuracy of the data. Mm, How much is already planned? (laughs) All right. Well, China's uh, GDP is uh, growing at uh, the slowest pace since 2009. Uh, Gross domestic product, uh, the official GDP, rose 7% in the first three months of 2015, compared with the same period a year earlier. In further worrying signs of economic slowdown in China, retail growth and industrial output slowed, whilst uh, fixed asset investment hit a 15-year low. Retail sales grew just uh, 10.2% from a year earlier, the slowest since February 2006 and missing forecasts. And industrial output grew just 5.6%, the slowest since November 2008 and also falling below estimates of 7%. Spending on infrastructure, factory equipment and property construction grew at a 14-year low of 13.5%. Here's Hank Paulson again. It can't continue to rely to the extent it has on exports and government investment, often municipal government investment in infrastructure. And so debt has been rising at the municipal level much faster than the economy has been growing. There are excesses and there will be bad debt here. But the key is, as we look at their growth going forward, 
I'll tell you what I look at, and I think it's what the rest of the world should look at. It should look at the source of that growth. The quality the, the of that quality. Growth. We should be much happier with growth, even if it's sub 7%, if they're getting it from the private sector and opening up to competition. Sock Jen, uh, China economist Yao Wei, is concerned about the latest data. It, it is uh, government's target, and it seems that the government in March, as they said explicitly, that they accept structural deceleration if it's gradual. But I think there is also reason to worry if you look at industrial production, that's the weakest number we have ever seen. Um, so, so that kind of sharp slowdown towards the end of the quarter, meaning that versus consensus, we actually expect some uh, recovery. That is a definitely a worrying sign that the economy is still heading down. This set of data basically saying that China right now is actually um, on, on the way to a hard landing. So the government definitely need to do more easing policy. But Schroeder's uh, emerging markets economist Craig Botham thinks that soaring markets may be hampering stimulus. And the, the problem, I guess, with the Shanghai index at the moment is that it's 80% sort of small investors and only 20, 20% institutional, which is the, the mirror image, really, of the, of the Hong Kong uh, counterpart. So it's very, very much a sentiment-driven, speculation-driven index. And at the moment, it's been the case that any bad news is good news because everyone assumes there'll be stimulus coming. Um, so I suppose the risk for the, for the authorities is that whatever stimulus they put in place isn't enough and disappoints the market and causes that bubble to pop. Markets, however, have taken the poor GDP data in their stride as analysts expect the Chinese government to undertake reforms and further stimulus measures. The Shanghai Composite Index closed down 1.2 percent at 4,083. The Hang Seng Index continued its rally, rising 0.2 percent to 27,618. In Europe, the FTSE 100 closed at a new record high of 7,096. And in the U.S., the S&P 500 rose high half a percent to 2,106, while the Nasdaq closed up 33 points at 5,011. The Dow Jones Industrial Average closed up 75 points at 18,112, driven by the investment bank Goldman Sachs, whose shares rose above 200 for the first time since the financial crisis. Goldman Sachs reports earnings tomorrow. Peter, are markets so used to the China story that they're just okay to shrug the GDP news off? Well, this is a momentum markets. So bad news is seen as meaning uh, more stimulus and more reforms. And as always with momentum markets, bad news is good news until it isn't, which is normally when the market turns and then people suddenly start to see bad news as being bad. But we're not at that stage yet. This morning, the Nikkei is down 0.01% to 19,867. Australia's ASX is up uh, three-tenths of a percent to 5,896. And Seoul's Kospi up seven-tenths of a percent to 2,134. Standard & Poor's cuts Greece's credit rating to a triple C-plus from a B-minus with a negative outlook. The ratings agency said that without deep economic reform or further relief, they expect Greece's debt and other financial commitments will be unsustainable. Greece is struggling with debt payments from a 240 billion euro rescue loan from creditors, including the IMF, the ECB and the European Commission. And as part of the terms of an extension of the bailout facility, uh, Greece must agree to a set of reforms with its creditors. 
The Eurozone holds crucial talks with Greece next week. However, German finance minister Wolfgang Schauble has uh, virtually ruled out a deal, saying that nobody expects there will be a solution at next week's meeting. Athanasios Orfanidas is a former ECB governing council member and he blames Germany for the problems. What we have since really since May of 2010 is, uh, is, is a situation where Greece was forced to get into a debt trap. I think this is a, a problem that should be a collective responsibility of, of Euro area governments to uh, to correct. And I think it's tragic that uh, uh, the narrative we hear out of, of Berlin uh, and, uh, and some of the other places, unfortunately, uh, in Europe, does not recognize that a mistake that was made that needs to be fixed. I think that unless we recognize that we need to correct some of these mistakes that were done in the past, we are going to have this political impasse right now where the Greeks are saying that they were cheated. And yes, they are right. They were cheated. And the Germans are saying that, that the Greeks are not delivering delivering uh, on what they promised uh, five years ago. All right, let's bring in our first guest this morning, Graham Maxton, who is the Secretary General of the Club of Rome. Good morning, Graham. Good morning. Graham, uh, you know, for our listeners, you have to uh, start by defining the Club of Rome. What is that? Uh, we're a think tank that's about 45 years old. It was set up in uh, the ni- late 1960s, and we are 100 people who concern ourselves with the problems facing humanity, so all the big environmental social problems. So top of that list being Greece? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a long way down the list. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's a tragic story. Um, I'm not sure that it, um, I, I would share your previous speaker's uh, belief that this is all Germany's fault. Okay. Um, the Greeks have borrowed far too much, they've been lent far too much, and they're not the same thing. And they're basically bust. Um, and at some point, um, Greece is going to have to default, and that's what nobody really wants to talk about. But isn't the problem really a whole one of structure in terms of how the European Union is set up? We have a currency union, but there is no fiscal union, so there's no mechanism for transfers. Germany is not prepared to do any sort of risk sharing. So on that basis, it's going to be very, very difficult for, to find a way out for Greece. Yes, I mean, the, 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 the solution that most people talk about is, is about Greece leaving the European Union, or, or leaving the euro at least. And that, to me, is just completely unthinkable. That, that would make their situation even worse. Because if you think about it, if they launched their own currency, the, the drachma again, it would be completely worthless. Uh, it would drop through the floor. That would then invite inflation, and their situation would get even worse, and all their debts would stay in euros. So the chances of them leaving the euro is completely zero to me. So even though they don't want to leave, and, and the EU doesn't want them to leave, could the markets end up forcing them out of the euro? I think that's also highly unlikely, because it would be such a catastrophe. The only thing that will get Greece out of this situation is for the banks to take a hit and that's what nobody wants to talk about but it's simply impossible to keep lending this country more and more money and hope they can pay it back somehow because because they can't i mean it's already too much so at some point we have to hit you know take the hit and the banks have to say okay we have to write half this money off or whatever and then we can move on but that's the only way we can get out of the situation yeah it doesn't seem to be uh going one way or the other um graham when you look at the latest uh, economic data out of china Whilst uh, GDP is growing at its lowest pace since 2009, it is nevertheless achieving the government's 7% target. 
so far. Do you think the authorities will be satisfied? Yeah, you know, I think, you know, I, I listened to your, your report on this a few minutes ago and, and heard people talking about a bad situation and slowing growth and, 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 and I just think, no, this is nonsense. I mean, this is a great, great situation. I mean, any economy of this size growing at 7% is spectacularly good. Um, you've also got to think about the demographics, you know, the, the number of people entering the workforce turned negative a couple of years ago. They don't need to create all the jobs that they had to create in the 1990s and 2000s. So they, they're in a situation where the economy is maturing as it always was expected to do. And 7% is still spectacularly good growth. I mean, you compare it to the other major economies of the world. And this is, this is a success story. So I think we should be portraying this as a success, not as a problem. Now, uh, Peter here, is, of course, is putting that number, the real growth rate, at 5%. Mm. So do you still agree if it's at 5 Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's obviously some question marks over, over the numbers. There always is in China. And, and they're always suspiciously accurate in terms of what the forecast was before to the actual number that comes out at the end. Uh, but that's the, things, the way the, the economy works in China. Uh, you know, for, for 25 years that I've been in Asia, people have been talking about a crisis coming in China and the debt, the building up and how it's not sustainable. And we've always been wrong. So <laughs> I don't see any reason to think about any, anything differently now. The Chinese economy is thundering along and doing extremely well. But at 5%, let's suppose it is 5%, that's great by US and European standards. But for a country the size of China, where in particular a lot of people are trying to move out of the countryside into the cities and looking for jobs there, are trying to move up into sort of the middle, uh, the middle class brackets, that, that's a problem, isn't it, for the government? Because, you know, this could lead to sort of unemployment and then uh, more discontent uh, amongst some of those people that are trying to find jobs in the cities. Yes, I mean, it's certainly, I, I, I would share that view, that there is certainly more of a challenge for the government and they do have a lot of problems with, with pollution and, 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 and unrest because of that and also because uh, the, the, there are more or uh, fewer jobs for, for migrants moving into the cities. But still, you know, if you look at the overall picture, th there's, there's, to me, no real reason to worry about the, the economy in China. It's, it's doing still extremely well for such a major economy and this is, this is what you'd expect. It's maturing. Okay, so a book written by a President Xi Jinping has just been launched in Britain and it attempts to explain China to the outside world. It's not something the mainland has always done with success, as the BBC's Michael Bristow reports. No one can doubt China's rise, but what will it do with its power and wealth? Those are questions the Chinese President Xi Jinping seeks to answer in his book, The Governance of China. The Chinese ambassador in London, Liu Xiaoming, praised the book at its launch in Britain. This book opens a window on today's China. Through this window, readers will be able to see where China has come and where China is going and what kind of road the people of China will take in pursuit of development. This book has all the answers to these questions. That's an ambitious claim, because the book contains ideas that aren't always easy to understand, such as the phrase socialism with Chinese characteristics. Britain's former Deputy Prime Minister John Prescott has visited China 30 times, but at the book launch he admitted that he'd often struggled to understand certain Chinese concepts. If I'm told what is said and answered in the book, I'm delighted because I've been asking those questions. We usually get half an hour with the president or a few minutes with some of the other organizations. You don't really get time to understand what's going on. 
China has another problem. Xi Jinping's book aims to reassure the world that its rise will be a force for good, but many in East Asia and beyond are not yet convinced. All right, so let's bring in our next guest, Professor Giles Chance. He's a visiting professor from the Tuck Business School at Dartmouth College, and he specializes in the China economy. Uh, good morning, Giles. Good morning. And thanks for joining us uh, once again after a very long hiatus on Money for Nothing. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So, um, you know, you, we've, you've just heard this clip from the BBC about President Xi Jinping's book and, you know, its attempt to explain China uh, to the outside world. Realistically, is China explainable? Um, I think even the Chinese themselves have uh, problems uh, understanding their own country because it's so complicated uh, and big and many have many different cultures within China, different languages and so on and so forth, um, and even more complex than Europe, including Russia. So, uh, I mean, Europe, um, China was unified 2,000 years ago. Europe really has never been properly unified. Um, but uh, I think it's difficult to, to uh, understand China, even for the Chinese. It's going to take a long time, I think, for the rest of the world to really comprehend uh, where China's going and what they really want and, and uh, who they are. And that, that misunderstanding between the West, and particularly America, and China is a major issue, I think. So what should China do to help in that process, to help with the understanding of, you know, the, the country and its growth model and its, its prospects? I think the soft, the, the, they have to develop more sort of soft power, if you like. I mean, they have to liberalise their media industry a lot. I think they have to try to uh, allow media to tell the story better. Mm. Uh, but that's maybe, the sort of thing they don't want to do at the moment, and they're almost I, I going know, in the opposite it, it, direction. It's, it, it's something they've got to learn to do. And I think the big story over the next 10 years is liberalization of media, actually, and really what happens to the Communist Party. That's really, to my mind, the number one story in China. Uh, you know, Giles, Hank Paulson said last night that China needs a new economic model. Okay. Mm. Would you agree with that? And if so, what should this new model look like? Well, I think it's been much discussed, hasn't it? I mean, the World Bank produced a report in 2010 or 11, China 2030. And that, that has the main constituents in it of the model, uh, which means slower growth, um, more value added, the government getting out of business, more market directed, more care for the environment and so on. And I think that model is now well established, much discussed, and I think the government are trying to head in that direction. Graham? Yeah, I just wanted to come in and sort of uh, take a different perspective here because one of the things that we're working on right now is new economic models, but not for China, but for the West. It's mm. the Western economic system that needs to be renewed, not the Chinese one in my view. It's the Western economic system that's creating inequality. It's the Western economic system that's creating unemployment. And it's the Western economic system that's destroying the planet. So and, and it's, it's our system. <laughs> why? Because it's driven, the entire system is driven by the throughput of resources, which is causing the pollution. The system is driven by rewarding the rich rather than the poor, which is creating inequality. And it's driven by increasing productivity, which is creating long-term unemployment. It's the Western system, which has served us very well for the last 30 years, but is causing almost all the problems that we have in the world today. Pollution? I mean, isn't that a major Chinese problem? Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> no, of course, but that's because it's trying to follow the Western model in terms of its industrialization. Mm, I see. Now, earlier this month on the show, we talked about China's One Belt, One Road initiative, and President Xi made a keynote speech uh, on the action plan in the Bao Forum in China. Graham, what do you think about that? And Do you think that could help economic growth? 
Uh, yes, I mean, just coming back to sort of your central theme there about China moving outwards, this is where I feel much less bullish about China. Ch- uh, if you go back 10 years, China seemed to be taking a very cautious approach to moving internationally. Uh, when you see what's happening today, it's failing to, to, to understand the markets that it's moving into. If you look at the story with Cherry right now in Brazil, for example, the car manufacturer, it's failing to understand cultural differences. And it's taking a very nationalistic approach and a kind of a, a superior approach to moving overseas. And I think this is a very big problem for the Chinese right now. They're not learning about moving abroad properly. And that's going to hold them back. Giles? Yeah, but I think there are companies like, for example, Huawei uh, in Europe, uh, High Air, which has been in the States for a long time, other Chinese companies, uh, some of the old companies that have learned a bit better about how to do business outside China. They're at the beginning of a long learning process. It's going to take a long time for them to understand how other people view them and how they do business and vice versa. Now, Peter? And when you start seeing some of these huge infrastructure projects, I mean, you know, there's a new Silk Road, there's talk about, you know, maybe even some sort of road link to the to Alaska and the rest of the US. Isn't this sort of almost like following maybe the mistakes that Japan started to make as it developed, you know, building bridges to nowhere and, and high-speed trains to tiny little villages? Aren't, aren't we at risk of making uh, the, the same, same mistake here? I think that I don't see much evidence at the moment that, that China's planning to build railways to nowhere. I think the, the, railway, the, the railways they seem to be talking about at the moment primarily are really from China across the centre of Asia to uh, ultimately to Eastern Europe. And that, they, that has a clear purpose to uh, provide China with an alternative to the seaborne route. And will, and will that benefit also the, cu- the countries that the, these links pass through as well? Oh, as well as for sure. And, and China's made a big point of saying that it's you know, multilateral growth. It's not going to be China-dominated and China-driven. And that also applies to the Asian New Infrastructure Investment Bank. It'll be very interesting to see how that governance works out, actually, to see how China uh, tr- maintains its interests at, at the same time as carrying out some sort of leadership role and collabor- getting people to collaborate together. And it's already rejected Taiwan's application, which is sort of <laughs> well, I think not quite the, the, to, to the be right to be to be expected, really. Right? I mean, you know. Giles, you know, the fact that the market seemed to have shrugged off the latest economic data from China, although you know some economists still remain concerned, should mm. we be concerned? I don't think so. I think the Chinese understand what they've got to do. It's a huge task. I agree with Graham. I think China on the whole is a fantastic success story. And uh, I remember people rubbishing it 20 or 30 years ago. (laughs) They've all been completely wrong. China has major problems, but we owe China a great deal in the West. We owe much lower prices for everyday consumer products. Australia, Chile, Brazil should be delighted with China for doubling, tripling, quadrupling the price of iron ore and every other commodity and enriching them vastly. And I think China is going to continue to play an even bigger and, and hopefully beneficial role in our lives. And Graham, you know, when we look at sort of market indicators elsewhere, the oil prices rallied back above $60 and uh, some heavily battered uh, emerging market currencies like the Russian ruble have also made a comeback. Um, and then, of course, we've seen the rallies in the Chinese markets. Would you say that investors are becoming more optimistic and markets are back in a risk-on mode? I think if you look at the overall global situation, we're living in in two parallel universes. 
you've got the markets which are all booming, um, particularly in the US, uh, but, but also in many other parts of the world, which would indicate that the economies were strong. And yet the underlying economic strength of, of most of the major economies in the world is, is very weak. I mean, if the US economy is still laden with debt, the European economies are still struggling, unemployment's rising, and yet we have markets booming. So we have these two parallel worlds, and at some point they have to come back into to, to connection again. And there has to be some sort of link between reality and markets, and that means that the markets have to fall. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning, gentlemen. That is Graham Maxton, who is the Secretary General of the Club of Rome, and Giles Chance, visiting professor from the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College in the U.S. The time is now 8.26 a.m. and the EU has filed a complaint against Google accusing it of anti-competitive behavior. The competition commissioner says that the firm's promotion of its own shopping links amounted to an abuse of its dominance in search. The EU has also launched an inquiry into whether the way Google, Google bundled apps and services for its Android operating system was unfair. The complaint follows a five-year investigation that could lead to billions of dollars in fines. The allegation relates to the ads that Google places at the top and right-hand side of its results. Rivals have complained that Google unfairly favors a range of services that it owns. Here's the EU Competition Commissioner, Margaret Vestager. Today, uh, we have uh, adopted a statement of objection to Google. Uh, It outlines our preliminary view that Google's favorable treatment of its comparison shopping service, you probably know it as Google Shopping, uh, is an abuse of Google's dominant position in general search. Uh, Google now has 10 weeks to respond. And of course, I will carefully consider the response before uh, deciding how to proceed. My goal is to ensure that consumers and innovative companies can benefit from a competitive environment in Europe. Well, Google closed uh, almost half a percent higher despite being formally charged by the EU with abusing its market position. A quick look at the numbers. Australia's ASX index is up a seven-tenth of a percent to 5,919, and Seoul's Kospi is up half a percent to 2,130. In currencies, one euro is currently valued at 1.07 US dollars. The US dollar is trading at 118 yen and one pound sterling, buys you 11 Hong Kong dollars and 51 cents, and also 1.48 US dollars. Gold is currently valued at $1,204 per ounce and Brent crude oil at $62.80. So uh, here we are at the end of the show, Peter. What else should we be looking out for as we reach the end of the week? Well, we're moving into U.S. earnings season. We're going to get a whole swathe of results coming out from banks and technology companies over the coming uh, days and week or so. Um, it'll be interesting to see whether we have an earnings recession. Um, this could be the first quarter for around four years that we've seen profits um, decline. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how the market uh, reacts to that. Although you have to be a little bit careful with U.S. earnings because these days they are so manipulated that, um, you know, you have to also look at other metrics such as sales and, and revenues. But nevertheless, the market focuses on EPS. 
Well, I guess there'll be uh, lots to discuss next week then. (laughs) All right. Thank you, Peter. That's our regular Thursday guest host, Peter Lewis, founder of Peter Lewis Consulting. And I'm Renita Malhotrahura, wrapping up for this morning's edition of Money for Nothing. And now it's time for the half-hour news with Janice Wong. The Chief Secretary, Carrie Lam, continues her meeting with pan-Democrat lawmakers today in an effort to win support for the government's political reform package. Yesterday, she admitted to so far having failed to gain any votes from the 27 Democratic legislators. The government is set to table its reform package to LegCo next Wednesday. Civic Party leader Alan Leung and ADPL's Frederick Fung will hold talks with Mrs Lam today. Another prominent supporter of Ukraine's ousted president, Viktor Yanukovych, has been found dead. Oleg Kalashnikov was shot outside his home in the capital, Kiev. The BBC's David Stern is in Kiev. Oleg Kalashnikov was reported to have been shot just outside his apartment. Mr. Kalashnikov was a former parliament deputy and organized support for President Yanukovych before he was driven from power. At least eight other officials from the Yanukovych government have died suddenly in the past three months. The majority are said to have been suicides, though officials say it's also possible that they were killed or forced to take their lives. Ukrainian commentators have accused both the pro- and anti-government camps for having a hand in the deaths. The European Union has been accused of endangering the lives of thousands of people who are seeking to reach Europe from Africa by sea. The EU has made big cuts to its rescue operations, saying it wants to deter migrants from attempting the crossing. In the latest incident, up to 400 people are feared to have drowned when their boat capsized. The BBC's Quentin Somerville is in Libya. The Coast Guard here warns that with clear skies expected in the next few days, hundreds more will attempt the crossing. 